Thanks, Rod. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, good evening to the Shalom boys and guys and people out there. We always know you're here because it, the, the worship has a very definite male sound. <laughs> Unlike previous weeks. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, got a couple of girls here in the front eating celery. And it's, uh, would you ever consider having celery as a snack? I, I could possibly imagine having celery with some peanut butter, all right? Yeah. But I think it's just too bland to have on its own, all right? But, you know, like I get lots, you know, like my salary has been actually increased this year. <laughs> Joke, all right? Uh, did you know that uh, lettuce is a really good vegetable? That's in the Bible all over the place. You know that? Come, let us worship and bow down. <laughs> All right. So, couldn't resist it. Couldn't resist it, the celery. All right. <clears throat> okay, guys. So, I've, I've got my Tiger T-shirt on tonight. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I really believe God's going to roar tonight. I really believe it. Picking up on Katy Perry's song. But that is 180 degrees opposite to the kingdom of God, that song. I don't know if you realize that. I mean, he, she is, she's roaring. Uh, it should be God roaring. And he, she's not the champion. Who's the champion? Jesus. All right. It says a lot about her, her statement and what she's trying to actually accomplish. But let's keep praying for that girl, right? A daughter of a Pentecostal preacher. Her mother's an amazing evangelist, apparently. So keep praying for Katy Perry. Um, yet I, I want to talk on the kingdom of God tonight. And um, previously this week I was going to talk on something else. I had it on my mind. And uh, until my time with God this morning. And then my time with God this morning replaced by revelation everything that I had had three days before, right? And it just happened to be uh, my, my scripture this, this morning is arguably my favourite chapter in the whole Bible. And, um, and it was just the perfect, perfect outreach scripture, perfect commissioning scripture. So, guys, I, I didn't need too much prompting. There was prompting from the Holy Spirit. There was definite prompting. But I was definitely prompted. But it was a delight for me to really prepare this. It's all, it's all in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to be focusing in on Luke chapter 10, all right? So Jesus defined the kingdom of God, all right? There's lots of stuff on the kingdom of God in the New Testament. But uh, I think the best definition is what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, all right? And um, Bill Johnson's written a lot on this, okay? And I really like his stuff. That earth is meant to reflect what is actually happening in heaven, right? So in other words, guys, there is no sickness in heaven, all right? Uh, there, there's nothing, you know, there's no crime, you know? There's, 
is none of that stuff. There's no, obviously, there's nothing really bad or lustful or dark. So the, the kingdom of God uh, longs to come to the earth and the, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus in every category of life. So um, let's just go, can we just go on to that scripture, um, Psalm 110, Katie? This scripture, um, this one here, is the most um, often repeated Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. This one here. All right. So it's Psalm 110, verse 1, uh, but it's picked up by Jesus, picked up by Paul, picked up by Peter picked up by the writer of the Hebrews. It's picked up also by John in Revelation. Everyone, everyone quotes this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All right. <clears throat> and um, tonight as I was just reading this, the next couple of verses really got my attention. Right. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. That's probably an Old Testament type of the church, all right? Saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing, okay, on your day of battle. Everyone who's going out this weekend, you are God's troops. All right, say amen to that. All right, all right. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle arrayed in holy splendor. Just make sure you're dressing well, okay? Okay? Your young men will come to you like you from the morning's womb. And I, that's like a generic men, just not men, but it's generic people, people instead. Okay, so how do we actually see the kingdom of God come to the planet, right? So... Uh, it says there, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, all right? So this scripture here, I believe, gives us an insight on, on how that's to take place, all right? So uh, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus was saying that as well. So if Jesus is saying that, who was the first Lord? It must be the Father, all right? So the Lord said to my Lord, and that, that is, the next Lord is Jesus, because then he eventually sits at the right hand of the Father. So sit at my right hand until, all right? So there's Jesus at the resurrection, right? He's ascended, and he's actually got a seat in heaven, all right? So I want two seats up on stage. Please, that one there and that one there. All right. Yep. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. So um, these two gentlemen, would you like to be the father? Okay. And this is the son right here. Let's give these guys a hand. All right. All right. Okay. Take a seat. Okay, so um, the son's just come to heaven, so you welcome him back. Just give him a hug, all right? All right. All right. All right. Okay, 
uh, it's, that's physical, uh, uh, you know, proof that the Father and the Son, you know, like one another, right? Okay, okay. Um, now, can you move your seat back just a little bit? Yeah, yours, yeah, the Son. And I need a couple of guys who've got a bit strong. I, I want that platform lifted and put at the feet of the Son. Come on, guys. They've got plenty of guys around here. All right. Let's do this. Just one. Just one. It's all right. That's right. All right. Now, what do you think that is? That's the footstool. All right. Okay. So, let's look at this scripture. Just stay there, guys. Um, Sit at my right hand. Okay. So, you're really on the left hand, but you're on the right hand. Right? Is that okay? Right? You're, you're on the right end. Okay. Until uh, I make your enemies a footstool. Now, here's my question. Weren't all the enemies defeated at the cross? Yeah? Okay. Did Jesus defeat every enemy? Okay. Then why is Jesus quoting this of himself and putting a time period on the fact that enemies will one day actually be put under the feet of Jesus. Do you get it? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I place the enemies as a footstool underneath your feet. This gives us a bit of an idea of what our task is. Our task, our mission, if you choose to accept that mission, all right, all right, is to enforce the victory of the cross. Everybody say that. To enforce the victory of the cross. Your job, my job, as the church, is to enforce that victory because the devil doesn't recognize it. So we've got to, we've got to actually take the victory of the cross and we do that in preaching the gospel. And every time somebody responds to Jesus, all right, then that, then there is a, a potential eternal sentence of death that actually then becomes an enemy, or it's already an enemy, but it's an enemy that's placed under the feet of Jesus. Put your feet over that right now. Every person here has had, if you have never met Jesus, you can't do that tonight, right? But you and I, we both had an eternal, eternal sentence of death over our lives. And Jesus broke that and he defeated that. And that's an enemy that's now been put under the feet of Jesus. Come on, guys, let's say amen to that. Are you excited about the fact that you have an eternal destination and you don't have to experience a second death? All right? And the second death awaits some people. And guys, let me tell you, it's an absolutely terrible, horrendous, scary, terrible thing, I'm sure. All right? To, to not actually have a relationship with God and to have not uh, yet have actually overcome the second death. That's the reason why the gospel is so urgent. Because we don't know when people are going to die in this lifetime because if they haven't got right with Jesus, then the decisions that they have not made in this lifetime, determine their eternal destination 
after death. That's why things are so urgent. We've got to get the gospel because we don't know, they don't know, all right? And so that's the reason why we go out and share the gospel. That's the reason why I've got to go and talk to that person. That's the reason why you have so much urgency in your spirit. I've got to go and talk to them about the Lord, okay? It's right now, right here. I've got to do it, okay? Because you're constrained by the urgency of the Holy Spirit, okay? So, guys, this is the mission of the church, to bring every enemy under the feet of Jesus because Jesus has defeated them. We've just got to now enforce that victory because the devil is trying to make it look like uh, there has been no victory, but we've just got to tell him and we've got to take our authority. And guys, we are the only ones. Could God do this through Jesus if he wanted to? Of course he could, but for some amazing, incredible reason, he actually chooses to do the enforcing of the cross through us and they don't come under the feet of Jesus unless we bring them. Do you, you see the incredible urgency of what's actually being given to the church? Okay? And the greatest enemy is death. And the last enemy that was defeated was the enemy of death. I think we just might play that uh, movie clip right now. Okay? If you like, guys, you can take a seat. Thank you. Let's give them a hand. Okay, now let me introduce this. Um, this is the passion. All right? And there's one scene in this that I'll never forget as long as I live. All right? There's a shadowy, dark figure here who's the personification of Satan. And they made him look like that, all right? And everything in the Passion is actually said in Aramaic. It's not said in English. It's subtitled, right? So this is what's happening in Gethsemane, and it's just amazingly full on, all right? So let's just have a look at this. Can we just kill the lights? Okay, now just leave it there. 
I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and between whatever. Okay? Between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. All right? And what that's basically saying is um, the, seed, the seed of the snake were all of the people throughout the Old Testament who were not covenanted under the covenant that God made with Abraham. So it was all of the Thites, you know, the Hittites, the Stalactites, you know, the, uh, you know all, of the, all of the Hittites and all of the Amalekites and all of the Girgashites and all of those guys, you know. And they were all the Philistines and all those guys that were uh, not covenanted by, uh, through Abraham. And they were at war against the seed of the woman, so the seed of the woman was the seed of Abraham, the Jewish people. So the reason why there's so much war in the Old Testament is because Satan knows that one day his head's, his head's going to be smashed. So what's he, what's he going to do? He's going to try and kill the offspring of the woman, which was Eve. And that's where, uh, uh, that's where Abraham came through and that's when the Jewish people came through. Because he, he knew, he knew prophetically it was all there in Genesis chapter 2. His head was going to be stomped on, right? But uh, he didn't want that to happen. So he actually tried to kill all the children there um, in Egypt, all right? He tried to kill all the children there in Bethlehem. And he was constantly at war trying to actually demolish Israel because there was a kid that was going to come through that line one day and it was going to be the Messiah. It was going to stomp on the head of Satan's seed. It was going to stomp on him and break him, right? So I want you to imagine the day Jesus went to hell. Okay. Okay, he's just given up his spirit and he said, it is finished, all right? And there's, you know, three days there where his spirit departs now the the thing that we've got to know about this is that jesus was fully human he he was god but in order for him to be a legitimate substitute for you and for me he had to live his life as a human he had to suffer as a human and he had to die as a human in order for him to fully identify with our humanity and at any time, he could have called on his divinity, but out of love for us, he never chose to. And so, therefore, he was led by the Holy Spirit to the cross. Then he died as a human, suffered the most terrible death as a human, all right? And thinking and carrying us in his mind as he went to the cross and as he died and suffered on the cross. Then he actually went as a spirit the Bible says that he went to Sheol. It was the place of the departed spirits, all right? Um, you know, some people talk about, you know, being held in, in Abraham's circle. But the early church believed that Jesus actually, his spirit went to hell. And um, anyway, whatever happened, wherever he went, there had to be a transaction of Jesus the human with Satan, because Satan felt like legitimately he had the keys of hell and death because they'd been given to him by our choices and by our sin. And the only way that those keys could be taken back from him was if a human 
who actually was tempted and who suffered but who never sinned and who was victorious as a human could go face to face with Satan and say, you've got nothing on me, give me those keys. Give me those keys. So he was able to, be, he was able to take them and in that way, for us, substitutionary-wise, he actually put his foot on the devil's head. You know, I like to see a picture where I see Satan actually bowed down with his head there and Jesus walking over and going like this. Now, when Jesus did that, and for everyone who believes in Jesus, we have the same authority that he won when he put his foot on the head of Satan. We, we do. Okay? And he gave us delegated authority it's almost as though it was Jesus himself in us. That's what it is. And we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives to do everything that Jesus would have been doing if he was still here. But instead, he does it through tens of millions of people called the church. He, and he's fully represented in power and in authority through us. All right. So therefore, guys, because Jesus stomped on that... That snake, he now has defeated death, defeated Satan, given all of that power and that authority, and now we have been given this amazing mandate to go into all the world and to actually confront every enemy of Jesus. And then once we actually overcome it, we actually then bring those enemies and they come under the feet of Jesus. Come on, guys. Isn't this, this is good news. Good news. All right? All right, so many times we actually have to have a power encounter before there is a truth encounter. The truth is the gospel, and sometimes people just respond to the gospel by talking, you know, preaching and sharing, and they want to know more, and that's great. But sometimes, you know, and we found this in Europe, that there's so much um, atheism there, so much paganism, um, that we, in our, our teams, met so many of them. And then we had so many good conversations, but it was going nowhere until we got to the power of God. All right, so Zach, where are you? Come on, Zach. Zach's right at the back. All right, man. So School of Evangelism, uh, Zach was on that. Uh, he was one of the teams that went to Biarritz and to Paris, and then um, he was on a team that went to London. Cool. Uh, so I just want <clears throat> to share a testimony uh, from our time in London. Um, so uh, every Friday afternoon, we would uh, volunteer uh, for a soup kitchen, which would provide uh, food for homeless people. And uh, one... Uh, after the end of one session, um, I was just sitting at this table uh, talking with one of the cooks. And we were just chatting, and I found out that he had uh, back pain. Uh, he had worked for the BBC, but like 10 years prior, he uh, hurt his back uh, in a work-related incident and was unable to work uh, for the BBC. And so, fast forward 10 years, um, I'm there, I just ask, hey, can I pray for you? Uh, he's like, okay, sure. 
but more just because he wanted to be polite than because he actually wanted prayer. So I prayed. Uh, nothing happened. I was like, all right, can I pray one more time? Well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Nothing. And so uh, pray again, and again, nothing happens. And so uh, he had to go, and kind of that was that. I was like, all right. And later I find out that he was walking with one of his friends, and his friends had noticed, why are you walking funny? Or why are you walking normal? And he was like, oh, my back is healed. And so it was a cool testimony how it wasn't in the moment, but after on, Jesus, Jesus had healed him. And the following week, uh, he came back and was sharing. He came to one of our team members and said, my back is healed. This is amazing. Jesus is good. So yes. Thanks, Zach. So what was the enemy there, do you think? It was sickness. It was pain, right? Is pain an enemy? Every, just say yes. Okay. <laughs> How many of you love Jesus here tonight? <laughs> Let me ask that question again. Is pain an enemy of the cross? All right. Did Jesus come and do something about pain on the cross? Yes. Say yes. Yes, he did. Right? So um, in this situation, there was dialogue that was taking place and very much with the, the postmodern young person or person uh, being so incredibly assaulted by so much humanistic junk that's actually coming and it's actually circulating and they're talking and actually the media is coming along with it and they, they get totally propagandized, totally infiltrated by the enemy through his lies and in relation to who God is. Then in conversation, there's so much that's got to be uh, undone in their lives. Their brain is sort of like twisted fishing line. And so, you know, there's headway taking place for the gospel, but they, they usually just got a veil of unbelief. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, you've, you've got to, you, you, that veil has got to be stripped away, all right? So another attack is sort of like, well, look, can I pray for you? And this is where if they say yes to you, they're saying yes to the Holy Spirit, saying yes to God. And guys, all of a sudden, you know, you lay hands on them and then some stuff happens in their, in their body that they have no explanation about. They feel power. They feel energy. They feel like electricity running through them. And they'll often say, what is that, you know? And then you have the opportunity to tell them. And they're a full-on agnostic or atheist and don't believe in God. But the incredible grace and love of God, the mercy of God, is that he wants them to be a beneficiary of his love and his power, whether they believe in him or not, right? So then we then being the people who are bringing enemies to the feet of Jesus, pain and suffering, even, even mental anguish, all right, and all sorts of uh, infirmity that are operating in their lives, I like to think of it as the side door of the gospel. The front door is truth. 
but they're often just so enamored with so much unbelief. So then Jesus did so much prayer for people and that they were actually then healed and then they actually ended up following him after that. Okay. Um, let's think of some other. Let's think of some other enemies. Okay, so you've got you've got sickness, normal sickness, but there is also demonic sickness. You can be sick because it's a demonic sickness. All right, it's not always a demonic sickness. It could just be the normal sickness, like the flu, or you know you've got something that you've caught. You know whatever. But Jesus can heal that also. But if you try to just heal demonic sickness by a prayer of healing without actually then taking your authority over the enemy, you see, because they are the enemies, they are the enemies of God, so therefore there is warfare involved in evangelism constantly, right? So if, if they are sick because it is demonic sickness, it's got to be a bit of a different prayer, okay? Because the devil will listen to your prayers for healing all day long, but until he is sternly corrected, because that's what the word rebuke means. The word rebuke means sternly correct. And say, so I rebuke you, Satan. Until you rebuke him and tell him to go, and you say to that sickness or that pain, I say to you, pain, I break you in the name of Jesus. All right? And it could be pain in the neck, pain in the belly, pain, pain wherever, right? And you're as specific as you can be. And then usually what happens when it's demonic, it just goes immediately. But sometimes uh, you might have to do a second prayer and it, 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 it happens then. And sometimes, like what Zach was saying, it happens later in the day or it might happen that night. We had some testimonies that came back from this last quarter and also from the SOE, where they prayed and rebuked the enemy and then they were healed and then there was people that were walking past the church. They walked into the church and just got right with God. All right? Uh, expect the healing immediately. I believe that that's the only way to pray for the sick. Okay? And try and discern whether or not there's demonic or if it's normal. And if you don't know the difference, well, go ahead and pray both. I just speak healing in the name of Jesus to this pain, this pain, and I bind the spirit of pain in the name of Jesus. All right. See, the worst thing that could happen to that person is that they get very free <laughs> because you're hitting everything. And guys, I'm often doing that. All right. Because it's so hard sometimes, you know, to recognize. But many times, guys, when you're praying for people, all of a sudden their demeanor changes and they start to feel things in their fingers and their body. And they're trying to actually get explanation for what's going on. And then we can tell them about Jesus. All right. Okay, let's just turn to Luke chapter 10. And if we could just look at these scriptures, 1 and 2. This is where I got so excited this morning. Okay. So, um, after this... The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, this is sort of like an advance party and they were going to get a sort of like a, uh, 
um, an entree, if you like, of what was going to happen when the main course came, which was Jesus, right? So he thought, I'll send them out, and that, they can do what I'm going to do, but this will be for them, but this will also be for the towns as well. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Okay, just hold on to the scripture for a minute, all right? So he had, he had 72 others because Jesus just didn't have 12 disciples. He had hundreds, all right? But of those hundreds, he chose 72, which gives us a little bit of an idea of what was actually happening because Jesus was going about preaching, but he was doing more healing than preaching, seemingly, all right? So stacks and stacks of people are getting healed and people are getting freed from demons, all right? And, and he's doing it to multitudes of people. So he couldn't ever do it in the city, so he had to wander out in the country. So then you've got thousands of people following Jesus because they've been either fed a meal or they've been healed or they've had demons or whatever and they're just following. It's like uh, that movie... Um, um, oh, you know, Tom Hanks, that guy, uh, that movie, Forrest Gump. He's running... He looks behind him and then there's a whole bunch of people just following him because they think he's doing it for some sort of noble cause, you know, but he's just, he's just running because he just wants to run, right? But a bit different with Jesus, all right? So, so Jesus is doing all of this, right? And so there are basically three types of people here. There's the follower who looks at the signs and the wonders and thinks it's really cool, I want to see another sign, or I wonder if I can get a sign done to me. You're a follower, all right? right? But after being a follower, then you might start being a believer. This guy really is a prophet. And then, you know, you might be thinking that this could be the Christ. This could be the Messiah. I believe that this guy is the Messiah. I believe, I believe. Then Jesus did some teaching, okay? And he started to talk about the conditions for discipleship. Unless you're prepared to lay down your life and follow me, you can never be my disciple. This is the third person. All right? So you had followers. All right? You would have a believer, but you'd have disciples. And a disciple is someone who actually absolutely obeys the commands of their master. All right? So Jesus had a heap of them. All right? Chose 72. Okay? And then he said, um, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, all right? So the Greek word related to this whole idea of being a laborer is an agricultural laborer who works in the sun for 12 hours every day. And this is a hard-working laborer. So the laboring for the kingdom, for Jesus, is, you know, a good day's work in the field. And so with those that are going out, you know, all of these teams that are going out, you'll have three sessions, morning, afternoon and evening, and you're usually going flat out for two of those sessions. And sometimes in weather conditions that are really adverse, right? And you get 
to the end of your day and you, all you can do is just hit the sack, but it all starts again 6 o'clock next morning, day after day after day after day, all right? It's a lot of hard work, all right? But you're going out, you're doing it for him, not doing it for yourself, okay? And he's talking about then praying earnestly that there would be more labourers that would go. Okay, next scripture. When you enter a town, okay, and they receive what is set before you, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come to you. All right? Our commentators are a little bit divided over this because the traditional view of the kingdom of God was always the announcement of the gospel. All right? But in this scripture, Luke actually turns it all around. He says, the first thing he says is heal the sick, right? And, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, here's where the commentators are a little bit divided. Some say... Uh, the second bit, the kingdom of God, is that's when you actually start to talk about, uh, that's when you start to talk about the gospel and the claims of Christ on your life. But others say that the kingdom of God actually is the healing. All right. If you've been sick for 15 years, you've had cerebral palsy, you've actually spent everything you've had, and Jesus comes along one day, and he says, be healed. And all of a sudden, man, oh, my goodness, man, power of God. You can jump. You can run. You can do things with your arms, you know. You, you, you've been totally paralyzed for the last 15 years of your life, okay? Do you think maybe the kingdom of God might have come to him? Has the kingdom of God come to him? And do you think the kingdom of God could have come to him even without the gospel? How about the thousands of people that followed Jesus just because they actually were healed? Had the kingdom of God come to them? Here's my view. Here's my view. Because, you see, guys, these people were following Jesus and he was healing them unconditionally. He wasn't requiring belief in him as the Christ. He healed them anyway. What sort of an amazing person is this guy, Jesus? But then, they, if they wanted to become a disciple, they were then baptised. And the, the, the ones that would baptise them would be the disciples. And they would put them through a whole bunch of questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then they became a disciple of Jesus. All right? So... The kingdom of God can come with healing. What is the kingdom of God? It can be healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, all right, and sharing the gospel with the poor. Now, they're poor in spirit, but also poor. And the people that are most open to the gospel are the poor, right? They've got no money and they're desperate. People that are really, really hungry. Refugees are very poor, right? Now, you can share the gospel with a lot of people proclamation-wise, and of course the kingdom of God does come there as well. Right? I'm not saying that the kingdom of God doesn't come without the gospel. Of course it does. We're all about making and declaring uh, the gospel of Jesus. But in evangelical Christianity, what we've done is we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We've just talked about the gospel without the power of God. The two are always meant to go together. 
when you share the gospel, it's great opportunity to do healing. And when you do healing, it's a great opportunity to share the gospel. All right? Either way, if you ever have an opportunity to share the gospel in a church and to challenge them to surrender, biblically in the New Testament, it was always followed by healing. So the demonstration of the kingdom has actually got to do with the power of God as much as actually the proclamation of the gospel. Okay, next scripture. All right, here's a real key in verse 16 of how to go about the gospel. All right, it says here, the one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So, guys, if people reject you, just keep going. Because who are they really rejecting? Jesus, right? So how do you know if they're ready to actually hear about Jesus? They're listening to you. If they're not listening, move on, right? If they really listen and, they, and you go to the second meeting or the third meeting and they're still unsaved, Invest, 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 invest because they could be people of peace. They could be the people, they could be the persons of peace that Jesus said were going to be there waiting for us. Look for the person of peace and when you find them, stay in their house and let them feed you and look after you. And then you invest a lot of time and then when you're actually in the house, you have lots of times around the dinner table. All right. So... Um, this scripture is like a filter for evangelism. And rather than being discouraged by rejection, it's a sort of like an indicator as to whether or not that person's ready or not. If they're not ready, move on. And at that point, they're not ready. But who's to say they won't be ready next week? Right? And you can keep on talking to them, but if they're not listening and not hearing, move on. Move on to someone else that's being prepared by the Holy Spirit for you. Okay, so that's that's sixteen. That's Luke chapter ten, verse sixteen. And finally, this is just four points of what the gospel is. All right. Number one, the gospel is God loves you. Number one. Okay, don't start talking about sin and belief and all that other stuff until until you can talk about the love of God and, and really be saying it with real meaning in your heart. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. All right? Let's communicate love in any way we can, number one. Number two, we have turned away from that love by our own choices. We've spurned that love. That's number two. So God loves, God loves us. But we've re- number two, we've rejected that love, right? Number three, we can have that love restored into our life if we believe and if we're prepared to say, uh, please forgive me or sorry for the son- sin- things that I've done uh, or language that really could be a substitute for sin. I, I like to use the language like... Um, the deeds that you've done that you are ashamed of. If you're talking to a postmodern pagan Westerner, uh, you, you, you may not, that sin may not register, the word sin. 
but at other, in other places it does fully register. You've just got to know which way. Okay, number one, what's number one? God loves. What's number two? Turned away from that love. What's number three? You can have that love restored by believing and repenting, getting right with God. Number four is at this point you say or you ask them, who is Jesus to you? Now the reason for this is because you should never tell a person, I believe, that they're saved. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, our spirit witnesses with God's spirit that we are a child of God. There's nothing there in the scriptures that ever says that we should tell a person that they're in the kingdom. We do them a disservice if we say that, right? Ask them if the Holy Spirit has actually filled them and they've believed, you know, as they believed, then they'd be able to say with, to you definitely, oh, Jesus, he's my saviour. All right? But if they say, oh, you know, Jesus, oh, he's a guy, you know, good fellow, prophet, you know, uh, said some good things, you know, they're testifying against themselves that they still haven't found Jesus. So then just pray for them. They still haven't met God. Okay? I was in Papua New Guinea a number of years ago. We had this open air and a whole bunch of Papuans came forward and, and um, and uh, we were, they were saying, yes, I believe, I believe, I believe. Um, so in a small group, I said, okay, so you believe. Uh, are you willing to turn away from the witch doctor? Oh, I don't know about that. Um, are you willing to not get drunk again? Oh, my goodness. What about sex? Oh, I said, look, guys. You're not saved. <laughs> it's better to say someone's not saved than to tell them that they are saved. You do a person a disservice because we want notches on the belt. We want people to actually say, yeah, uh, I led these people to Jesus. They said yes. And, uh, yeah, because they said yes, I, I said you're now a Christian. And then and it's all over Red Rover. We, they, they think that they can do all sorts of things and this is what they this is what they call um, enthusiastic dualism. Enthusiastic dualism is when you actually say you are one thing, but you live a double lifestyle. So you go to church and uh, you do these things, uh, outward activities, when you're actually making it look like you're a Christian, but on the inside you're not, and you're living a double lifestyle, and you're doing all of these other crazy things on the side, drugs. You know, immorality, you know, witchcraft, you know, and, you know, all of this other stuff. And it's a sin-confess, sin-confess, sin-confess cycle that, you know, we, we want people to really get to the point where they then say to us, Jesus is my Saviour, he's my Lord, and I've turned away from all of this stuff. And the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and there's incredible godly sorrow operating over their lives, right? All right, what's number one? What's number two? Turned away. We're well, number three. Can have that restored. What's number four? Who is Jesus to you? All right. And then, guys, um, you could then go into a time of prayer with them and ask, can we pray? You know? And Amada, who actually came and spoke on our SOE, 
challenged us to always ask the question, do you want to believe in Jesus? Personally, I don't like the idea of inviting Jesus into your hearts. I know it's pedantic, but I don't like it. I like the idea of belief because it's a verb, okay? It's not coming in. It's, it's sort of something that you're projecting out. You, I believe. I believe. And that word belief, pistos, actually means your confession is going to be matched by your lifestyle. All right? So let's say, let's ask them that question. Do you believe? All right? All right? Do you believe? And then let them say that back to you and then have a time of prayer. And you could be praying with them and praying for all sorts of things. Okay. A couple more things. Healing. So this is a commissioning word, or not a commissioning word, this is a sort of like a departing word for all the people here. All right. So I just want to go into on how you can pray for healing. And the staff are giving up a corporate groan because uh, they've heard this before and they've done it many times before, all right? But bear with me because there's a whole bunch here that don't or haven't, right? Zach was saying tonight that he actually prayed three times, I think, all right? So when you're praying for someone for healing, bro, can you come up? Okay. You're sick. You're very sick and you've got all sorts of demonic sicknesses and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Often what we do is we go behind and we pray for them like this, all right? Um, the, a good method that is functionally really good, really good for all sorts of reasons, is you look them, you, you're, you're on the front. So there may be three or four of you praying for him around the front. And then you ask him to close his eyes. Close your eyes. And the reason why you close their eyes is because then they're, no, they're not distracted and they're not distracted by physical things all around them. And all of a sudden, the unseen world is actually now visible to them because their eyes are closed, right? So eyes are closed, all right? Okay, so uh, you've already said that you've got a terrible disease, all right? And it's eating up your gut, all right? Okay. So um, we'd say... Um, just receive the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, here's the key with this prayer. The Holy Spirit loves to be waited on. He loves us to wait on him. So, guys, don't be in a hurry to pray. Allow the Holy Spirit to be filling your mind with his prayer. Say, so receive the Holy Spirit. And then in your spirit, you're waiting for the right words. But also in your spirit, you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on him. Now, how do you know when the Holy Spirit has come on them? You'll know it because you'll see something on his face. Uh, sometimes there's a smile. Sometimes the eyes start to flutter, right? Uh, there can be some contortions, you know, in the face and in the body, you know. <laughs> And sometimes uh, they can just disappear. They fall, all right? So you just say, receive the Holy Spirit and you wait. Just wait. Okay? And then at that point, you, uh, guy to guy, 
guy to guy, okay? And if you can, go to the area where the pain and the disease is and then just um, go into prayer. And it could be healing and then actually rebuking, okay? Doing both, all right? And then after a little while, uh, just uh, have a conversation with him and say, how are you doing? Uh, do you have any more pain? And he says, it's a bit better. And then you go into round two. Okay, close your eyes. All right. And then there's a different prayer maybe. Okay. And it might actually be feeling led to go into something like witchcraft or something else. Or it could just be, uh, it could just be something that's generational. All right. So you pray a different prayer and you may go on for about another three or four minutes. Okay. And then you come back and say, how are you doing? Oh, it's feeling very, very good. Still a little bit left. Okay, then you go into round three. All right. This process can go on for 15, 20 minutes, half an hour. Okay? Now, when Jesus was praying for that blind man and he actually prayed for him, and he says, What are you seeing? He says, I'm seeing men like trees. Jesus went into a second prayer. Jesus went into a second prayer. When Jesus was praying for legion, there was indications that he'd already prayed once before he actually asked him, what is your name? He'd been praying for him and he wanted to know the name. There was a thousand demons in that guy, right? So uh, then he actually got the guy released. So that's a good methodology, all right? If there's blindness, okay, over one eye, okay, then uh, each of the teams, if you can take a card that's got the letters on it and then go at a certain distance and find out which line he can't read and you know it's that distance, right? Then you go into prayer and it could be the right eye that's, that's a little bit blind or very blind. So that's the eye that you focus on, right? Okay, and you may want to speak to a spirit of blindness. That's what Jesus did. Or you just may want to pray and speak healing in the name of Jesus to that right eye, right? Then after that, then you actually bring the card out. The idea is, can you read that line? Yeah, I can. Can you read that line? Yeah. All right, see, so he's been totally healed, right? With deafness, same deal, okay? You have his eyes closed, all right, and you flick your fingers and find out how far you have to go before he can't hear. So you know you know it's that far. Okay? And it's the right side. And then you rebuke that and you pray for healing and then you bring him back, all that sort of stuff. Okay? Uh, 